0: My name is Mike Campbell. I appreciate you listening. Hey, by the way, and I especially appreciate when you recommend Money Talks to other people you know, send them links to some of the things we do. Again, I am very much appreciate it. And I was thinking, boy, isn't the world depressing enough right now? Why am I going to add to it? But I want to give you a warning. I'm going to do that. I got to start today by bringing to your attention what I call, I'll make it part one of why I think the massive consequences of the buildup in sovereign debt are now unavoidable. Also in the show, I'm looking forward to this because we've got Aaron Dunn uh, looking forward to hearing what he's got to say because he's looked at the marketplace. He's talking about some of the opportunities he sees, but the big discrepancy in the market, you see the overall numbers about the market. No, they're very deceiving when you know that seven stocks are driving everything, but. At the same time, we've had a sharp downturn in many of the small cap stocks. Other stocks have stagnated. Actually provides a better opportunity if you're looking for investments. I've also got Ozzy Jurek. He's going to give you a big warning. There's a new tax. Well, not so new. It was announced over a year ago, but then the delay in uh, in having to implement it, but it affects maybe all of us, maybe you, but I want you to check out whether it does. We're talking about the unused home tax by the federal government. This is something that every one should be apprised of because there's a penalty if we don't file and we're supposed to. Anyways, I'll let Ozzy explain all of that coming up. Victor Dare is gonna share his trading secrets. Uh, As I say, so much coming your way. Jason Weber is gonna be with me and I'll elaborate in a moment. But first, I wanna bring to your attention what I consider the most serious financial economic issue that threatens our financial well-being. Well, actually it already has for many of us. I'll elaborate in a moment, but first let me just start with a question to help illustrate. If stocks or real estate dropped 46%, some even 53%, do you think it would rate at least some headlines? Maybe a top story or two? Because that's actually what has happened in the bond market from the peak in prices and the low in rates in 2020 to 2020 actually, and yet it barely makes the news or headlines. You'd think that trillions of dollars in losses would rate big coverage. Even the near collapse of the UK bond market or the massive spike in overnight rates in September 2019, which I called at the time the biggest financial warning in our lifetime. Hey, it didn't merit much. Few people paid attention. And I think that, can't think of anyone in the mainstream media who made a point of it. And now it's worse. And has ushered in what the Bank of America calls the biggest bear market in history for bonds. And by the way, that's why, starting at the World Outlook Conference in February 2020, we said that interest rates were gonna hit a 5,000 year low in the coming summer and fall. But after that, you can't freaking own bonds. You gotta lock in your borrowing. Now remember, just one little thing here, that bond prices move in the opposite direction to yields. So if you get a big increase in interest rates, Well, you're going to have a big loss in the price of the bonds, 46% loss in the 10-year Treasury bond, more than 50% drop in 30-year bonds, which in turn, and this is the important part, well, it hurts bank reserves. It hurts your pension funds, hurts our mutual funds, and of course, individual investors who don't or didn't hedge the risk. The decline in bond prices is what brought Silicon Valley Bank down. It nearly crushed the UK pension fund in October last year. The rising rates and accompanying bond losses are threatening the Japanese financial system right now. And as I've said so often, this decade is going to be all about debt. I guess Canadians who have already renewed their mortgage or are about to renew already know what that means. Simply put, debt, especially government debt, is going to actually change the world. It'll change the monetary system. So there's only two, I mean, this is a big subject, obviously. So there's two areas I want to bring to your attention today. First, I think you remember if you're a regular listener, it was October 2015 on Money Talks, we started to warn about a sovereign debt crisis. And we said it would start in emerging market countries like Argentina, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Venezuela, dozens more who borrowed, especially in US dollars. But the point I want you to get and i want you to understand it in capital letters is the sovereign debt crisis is starting to impact developed nations and we can't afford to ignore the impact whether it's on currencies interest rates commodities social cohesion in a moment i'll explain why i think we've passed the point of no return i can explain who the problems are why the problems are now inevitable but the second point is that the key focus for individuals is we got to prepare For how the debt crisis is going to play out. Will it be significant asset reductions as people and governments are forced to liquidate assets in order to come up with the cash? Or, after a period of that, will central banks come to the rescue by creating huge amounts of money to pay escalating interest payments on the debt and bail out pensions? Will they be forced to create hundreds of billions, maybe trillions, to buy bonds in order to keep the interest rates down, as they did during COVID? Japanese are doing it right now. And also they're going to be faced with having to come up with tens of billions of dollars more to fund government pensions. So if money creation is the response, then we'll be looking at a major devaluation of the purchasing power of paper currencies. I mean, obviously, we've been living through some of that, but I'm saying it's going to be accelerated. Now, I'm not going to go on and on, so I'll finish with giving you the Coles Note version of why I think the crisis can't be avoided. You know, this week we got a good summary of the situation by American billionaire hedge fund manager and philanthropist Paul Tudor Jones, who said, you get in this vicious cycle where higher interest rates cause higher government funding costs, which means more debt issuance, which causes further bond liquidation, which cause higher rates, which put us in an untenable fiscal position. Let me add that we're also in a period of declining economic growth, which will reduce government revenues. But it's straightforward to understand. He's saying higher interest rates mean governments pay higher debt servicing costs, of course, and they got record debt. But governments are in a deficit position, so they'll be borrowing to pay for the increased interest costs. What does that do? Pushes overall debt higher, which means higher debt servicing costs. That's the vicious cycle he's talking about. I mean, it's key to understand that while the Bank of Canada set short-term rates, here's the thing. Buyers and sellers in the bond market set mid- and long-term rates, which means that governments who want to borrow must make it attractive for investors to lend money when they buy the bonds. Of course, that usually means higher rates. All of this is happening, though, as I said, while the economy is slowing down, while the need for tax revenue is increasing. Now, there's more to it, but I'm going to leave that for now with a to be continued, because the impact of the end of low-priced energy combined with the fact that commodities are traded in U.S. dollars also has a profound impact on our financial future. But at this point, my bet, and that's all it is, is that after a short-term drop in the economy, which decreases government revenues at a time that assets prices are falling, which then impacts the collateral for loans held in the banking system, for example, the government's going to opt to create money which will severely impact the purchasing power of our dollar. Which is why I've been saying, I guess, as, man, for three years now, the key challenge for all of us is going to be how to protect the purchasing power of our dollar. That'll be one of the themes, maybe will be the theme at the World Outlook Conference this year. But it's a question we'll continue to examine. I think it'll take for the next seven years as the debt and entitlement crisis intensifies. <laughs> I'm always saying that you know stuff about the stock market or it could be other investment markets, it could be housing, it could be gold, you name it. But the bottom line, if you're an analyst, is getting it right. That, that's the only measure that counts, and that's really hard. people don't understand. I don't mind if someone doesn't like me or they don't like my opinion. My point is, let's find out if I'm right. That's the only measure. That's why I like the guys at Keystone Financial at Keystocks.com, you can find them. Uh, Ryan Irvine and Aaron Dunn have been with us. I don't know how many years now, Aaron probably doesn't want to remember, but well over a couple of decades. And the bottom line is they have the same opinion as I do, or the same approach is get it right, get a methodology that works. And then you see, hey, did it. And in this case, yeah, it does on a regular basis, a very regular basis. Uh, And Aaron Dunn joins me now on the line. First of all,
1: appreciate you being with me, Aaron. I'm happy to be here. And there's, there's plenty of things to talk about in the market right now. So it's a good time.
0: Let, let me start with this divergence we're seeing in the market where at least if we're talking well, different exchanges have had, had different levels of uh, return, but also then different stock groups. I mean, we got the so-called Magnificent Seven, all of those
1: kinds of things that, you know, play into our analysis of the market. Yeah, so certainly. So if you look at the returns between Canada and the U.S., last year was was – about the first year in 10 years where the U.S. actually underperformed the Canadian market. And that was mostly because energy in Canada was strong, whereas technology in the U.S. was weak. They had a really bad year. Technology had a really bad year in 2022. So now it looks like we've seen a recovery of that in the U.S. If you just look at the headline figures, that being that the the NASDAQ is up about 30%, almost 30% since the start of the year. So a lot of people look at that and they think, well, that's that's a good recovery in the NASDAQ, but the interesting thing is when you really, when you break down the numbers, um, you look at the top seven mega cap companies uh, in the US. So So this would be Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, which is Google, Meta, NVIDIA, and Tesla. If you just look at those companies alone, they account for about $11 trillion in market cap. That's half the NASDAQ right there in seven companies. They're up on average 97% since the wow. start of the year, right? So the other, there's about 2,500 companies on the Nasdaq. So the other, you know, 2,493 companies are actually on average down, probably yeah. about 15 to 20% by those numbers, right? So it's, there's a major divergence in terms of what's happening in the market. And clearly there are some companies as well outside of the, the top seven that have done well. But, you know, generally we're really not seeing a, a broad-based recovery in the U.S. market. Uh, yeah, and, should, you know, similar up here in Canada, I mean, we're we're pretty flat for, for the year.
0: But it should be at least some solace to a lot of portfolio managers who their clients come in and say, hey, where's our return? And you explain that if you didn't own those seven stocks or, the, you know, a couple of them, hey, there was no return. You know, to be had. And of course, that's come on top of a very tough bond market. My gosh, the last few months there alone, you know, and this is what's created such a difficult time for traditional portfolios. When if you go down stocks, as you did in 22 and then mediocre in 23, but your bond side's going down too,
1: mm-hmm. man, that's a tough environment. Well, and that's an issue because bonds are, are traditionally thought as being not correlated with stocks, right? Like you, you, you put money into bonds. The idea was so that you can diversify, so you can you can even out your return, you can tame down the volatility. But that's not what we've been seeing over the last year. Let me ask about the small caps, because you
0: guys have an expertise in the small caps. It's a proven expertise. You'd also do, of course, you know, solid growth. You do growth with income, that kind of stuff. But the small cap is what you guys started with and became known for because you had a lot of winners. Bottom line was that. Uh, What are we seeing in the small cap side of things generally?
1: Right. So one of the reasons why we really focused on the small caps traditionally as the core of our business is because there really just wasn't a lot of coverage in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look right now at just the market overall, if you were to compare small caps versus large caps, small caps right now are are trading at a historically high discount to the large cap market. Um, and this is actually unusual because for most of the last 20 years, They've actually traded at a premium to the large cap market, and a lot of this I think has to do with fears about recession. Uh, perhaps the market is is assuming that small caps overall are going to be more susceptible to a downturn in the economy, which is which is fairly rational. but the problem here, and this is something that we always want to want to advise people and remind them about is that you know small cap can mean a lot of different things, and at Keystone we're not investing in the small cap index. We're looking for the very best that the small cap market can provide. So these are profitable, growing businesses that we can purchase at, at a reasonable valuation or even a, a good discount undervalued valuation. Um, but when you have a situation right now where small caps overall are now trading at a 20-year at discount to, to large caps, really what happens is even the best of the breed in the small cap market often get thrown in with the rest mm-hmm. of them. So many of them also traded a discount. So that really is, is the long-term opportunity is uh, in the small cap market right now is finding those profitable companies that are better than the far superior fundamentally to the rest of the small cap market, but at the same time are temporarily being grouped together with other small caps um, and trading at a, at, a, at a good valuation, low valuation.
0: Well, I just want to mention, by the way, you guys have got a couple of uh, webinars coming up that are full webinars. And I'll, I'll talk about the first one here because you're doing it November 2nd and November 9th, both at about 7 p.m. Uh, on November 2nd, 7 p.m. Pacific, and then on November 9th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Well, we're going to put up the details of that in Mike's Money Or you can go to. Uh, keystocks.com. But I just want to, that's the kind of thing you're going to be dealing with, like on one of them, and I'll talk about both, but one of them is building a winning stock portfolio. And you know what? I think it's never been more important because uh, I think inflation pressures demand that people invest in this way. Now, I like uh, what the bond market's been doing for the last three months, let's say, you know, that's it, (laughs) you know, but stocks over time, are beneficiaries of inflation. And that's why I think this is maybe something if people haven't done it before, for goodness sakes, take a couple of hours you know, and become informed on this stuff. So uh, tell me a little bit more about that first seminar.
1: Sure. So what this seminar is doing is it's, as you said, it's providing education. And then we're also providing actual individual stock picks like recommendations that people can buy right away. So what we want to teach people to do is to be able to build up a, a... 20 to 25 stock, individual stock portfolio over a period of about 12 months. So so gradually increasing the size of that portfolio over 12 months. Um, So we're essentially walking people through the process of how you would do that. Um, We're looking at different areas in the market um, and talking about how investors should approach them. And that may include um, categories like artificial intelligence, um, growth investing, how dividend growth stocks should be integrated into the portfolio portfolio. Um, some people do also want to have ETFs to get some wide diversification outside of their individual stock portfolio. So how do you integrate, um, indexed ETFs with, uh, with an actively managed individual stock portfolio? Um, we're going to, we're going to talk about that as well. What types of companies, like what is the profile of the type of company that you should gravitate towards? What should you want to buy and what types of companies should you avoid? And, and well, these, I, these are like essentially giving people the tools that they need to be successful and build up that portfolio.
0: And that's applicable whether you manage your own money or you don't. It gives you more information, more background to have a, an elevated conversation with whoever is helping you with your portfolio. So I, th- I think it's important on that scale, too. But I got to throw this at you, Aaron. Uh, last year on this show, and you did it at your seminar, you recommended Hammond Power. Now, those are the things I like, Aaron. It went up 200 plus percent. What, 250 percent? 250
1: percent since the recommendation yeah. at, at the at the event, at and the it was seminar. actually recommended yeah. previous to our to our clients. Um, uh, yeah. so that so their return would have been higher, but at the event, 250 percent.
0: Yeah, and uh, you don't have to have any expertise in stocks to know that's a good thing. So I'll just say congratulations. Let me come another direction there about Canadians owning U.S. stocks. Now, I've been keen on the U.S. dollar, never wavered on that. I have an end date for that for myself when I think the party's over. But right now, I don't think it is. Uh, How do you work with U.S. stocks? You guys do a lot of research in that direction. Um, We do.
1: We do, yeah. And like I said, the the U.S. is is a serial outperformer of the Canadian market. The mm-hmm. US market outperforms Canada in almost every year, certainly over the past decade plus. And you know, you could never just assume that that's always going to be the case going forward, but I think that there there are some very systemic reasons and structural reasons why that's the case and I and why I think that outperformance is going to continue. And the problem with the Canadian market is that you know, we're so overconcentrated in resources and in financials and financials is basically Mostly the big six Canadian banks, so sixty percent of our stock market is resources and financials, whereas um technology, which to me is the most interesting sector to invest in that's where innovation comes from that's where uh, you know essentially that's the that's a sector that moves society forward, that moves other industries forward and changes all industries um it's 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 very unimportant in the canadian stock market it's it's less than eight percent. And you know most of that is Shopify, um, one company. Whereas, or or a good portion of that is Shopify. Whereas, if you look at the at the U.S. market, in spite of it being more than ten times the size, in addition to that, the way that the market is diversified, it's just a, a much better diversification across other sectors, um, like industrials and healthcare, and then technology is is the top sector in the U.S. about twenty five percent of the of the U.S. market plus, depending on how you categorize certain companies. So, you know, by not investing in the US market, you're really setting yourself up at a huge disadvantage. And I talked to Canadian investors that just they have all their capital here in Canada. I personally think that's a big mistake. I think that every portfolio needs to have some exposure to the US. It's just too important an economy. Uh, You know, just from a you know, looking at their, the way their economy operates, their stock market operates. It's just, it's a very entrepreneurial culture. It's a, it's a culture focused on innovation and that's an opportunity for investors. So don't disregard the U S market. Don't just keep all of your capital at home. A lot of people are worried about the currency risk. Um, we think that actually having some exposure to other currencies is good, but outside of that, you know, these things tend to, to, to even themselves out. And if you look historically, There's never been a single year, even when you lost money on the U.S. currency, where you would have done worse by being in the U.S. market. Like your your gain of being in the U.S. market, relatively speaking, was always higher than the loss Mm -hmm. on currency. And then, of course, in some years you gain on currency. So that's Uh, not a reason not to to invest in the U.S.
0: Yeah, but your point also about the much wider selection, you know, aggressively wider Mm -hmm. selection is a very important one and the domination of certain sectors in ours compared to the opportunity of different sectors in the U.S. I think people shouldn't you know, underestimate how important that is. Uh, let, me, let me, you know me, I always put you on the spot. I mentioned Hammond Power. Give me a couple of, of things you're looking at these days. Of course, you don't know people's individual portfolios or, or risk profiles, et cetera, but things that maybe
1: people could put in their radar and then do the analysis if it's appropriate for themselves. So I'm going to start. We just talked about U.S. investing. We talked about the mega cap 7 So the first company that I'm going to suggest that people look at is Alphabet. G uh, G O O G L on the NASDAQ. This is Google, right? So, of course, everybody knows Google. Some people will say, well, why are you recommending Alphabet? We all know about it. But do you know why to invest in it? That's that's the question. So it was, you know, over the past year, a lot of people were really looking at, at Google search um, suspiciously with ChatGPT coming out, and everybody really kind of thought like, "Oh, now that ChatGPT is out, Microsoft's a big investor. They're integrating ChatGPT into Bing. This is going to start eating into Google's um, share of the search market, which is most of its business." That was the big concern. So Google's shares sold off. However, that didn't happen. You know, it's 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 being now we're approaching now um, almost a year. And their, their market share in search is as strong as ever. And I can say from my personal experience, I went right to Bing when they integrated chat GPT. I was really excited about it. I, I was even telling people to Bing things instead of Google things and people were starting to get annoyed with me, but whatever. I ended up going back to Google because it just, it just ultimately it is the best. It provides the best search results. And now Google is starting to catch up. I mean, they are a number one, a top tier AI company. The technology, the research that actually resulted in the development of ChatGPT actually originally came from Google. Now, Google's come out with their own uh, large language models, Google Bard. They've come up with their Paul model. They're integrating all of this into their business. um, And they're they're, they're, they're doing as good as they've ever done or better. They have YouTube, which I consider to be one of the largest educational institutions, platforms in the world. They have Google Cloud which is the third largest cloud computing company in the world and gaining market share. So a lot of good things going on with the company. You have to have some exposure to the, to the mega cap seven Uh, alphabet is one way to do it. Uh, Double digit earnings growth right now this year and expected next year, but it's still trading at a valuation That's actually pretty cheap relative to the company's fundamentals, about 24 times this year's expected earnings and about 20 times next year's expected earnings. Another thing, They have $118 billion in cash sitting on their balance sheet. They made almost a billion dollars, about $900 million, just in interest income alone. Now, obviously, we would like to see them deploy that cash. But if you're looking for a company that is well-situated in a high interest rate environment, look no further than a company that's sitting on $118 billion in cash and virtually no debt. So Google is a company that, or Alphabet is a company that, that people can look at.
0: You know, it's interesting with the rise in interest rates. Of course, we're focusing on people who've borrowed the money, governments who've borrowed the money. Actually, Microsoft and uh, Google were my examples of companies with huge cash portfolios that were benefiting from the higher rates. There's a tendency to say, think everybody's losing because rates have gone up. No, it's exactly what you said. You look at Alphabet's huge cash portfolio and they're just laughing. You know, they mm-hmm. got 1% on that a year and a half ago, and now they're at 5%. It's a big moneymaker for them.
1: No, and they don't have to worry about, about servicing debt, which is incredible. Yeah. They could take that at some point. They could invest it. They could they could use it for acquisitions. It's, um, it's a good situation to be in, particularly in this type of an environment.
0: Let's come to this side of the border here. Uh, you know, and I know you guys look at literally every stock out there. But uh, I'll ask you about sort of a mid-size, and then go down. And I'll ask you before you go for a smaller one. But give me something that, you know a little bit bigger.
1: Sure. So mid-size. So I'm going to talk about a company. It's, it's called EQB Inc. Uh, the symbol is EQB. It's on the Toronto Stock Exchange (TSX). And this is this is a bank, but this is a niche bank. It's the seventh largest bank in Canada. They call themselves Canada's Challenger Bank, which means that they're challenging the big six banks, the big six banks. But they they have a niche focus. So their niche focus is based on the customer that they tend to work with and also their technology focus as well. So they're a very technology-driven company, almost in some ways like a fintech. They're able to provide um, technology features to their customers very quickly, far quicker than the big banks. Um, and this might be with customer onboarding or customer service or mm-hmm. even transferring money. But the reason why we like this company is because it's a business that consistently over time has had far superior fundamentals to virtually every other bank in Canada. They're growing their earnings per share at a double digit rate where all the other banks are struggling to maybe grow at at low single digits or in in most cases um, seeing lower earnings than they've seen in previous years. So. We recommended the company originally at the start of the year uh, around February, March, and they had just come out with the revised five-year plan. So their five-year plan um, going forward over the next five years is to double their earnings per share and to triple their dividend, triple the size of their dividend. Now, what really gives us confidence in this outside of just analyzing the current fundamentals of the business, all of the numbers look strong. Um, in terms of uh, net interest margin strong, capital ratios, strong, uh, loan losses strong. Everything compares extremely well to the other banks, better operating efficiency. So right across the board, but they had just finished a five-year plan where they had also said that they were going to double earnings and they did better than doubling their earnings, right? So this is a company that has a historical track record of making goals for themselves and achieving or exceeding those goals, and we have high confidence that they're going to do it again, based on their their financial results in the first two quarters of this year. Obviously, it's early into the five year plan, but I would say they're well ahead of target right now at this point. So this is a business, you know, you, you want to look to hold it for, you know, three years, three to five years as they execute that plan. Um, but as this company doubles earnings. We we believe strongly that this is going to show up in the in the share price performance as well. Uh investors are getting a dividend. It's about 2% right now, which is just kind of the like the bottom threshold that makes a dividend stock interesting to me. But if you're looking at doubling to tripling your dividend over the next mm-hmm. five years, I mean there's a lot, there's there, there's there's huge extra income stream coming in from that. And it's trading at eight times earnings. So superior fundamentals to the other banks, more attractive valuation. Um, outlook and all of the the numbers uh, look strong at this point.
0: Give me a quick uh, small cap
1: before we're done here because I know time's running short. But uh, give me a, a small cap. Sure. So I'm going to talk about um, gold has been topical lately. So I'm going to talk yeah. about a company called Dynacor DNG. Uh, so what they are is they're a, they're a gold miller. They have a gold processing facility in Peru. Uh, and this is a this is this is a, a small cap company. It's about 120 million market cap. Um, but it's another company that has net cash on their balance sheet. So they have about $30 million in cash sitting on their balance sheet, virtually no debt. That's about, that's about uh, a quarter of their market capitalization. Um, and what they're providing investors is they're providing indirect exposure to the gold market. So they're not directly exposed to the commodity price of gold because they're a miller, they're a processor, but at the same time, they are exposed to opportunities in a strong gold market. Um, so what those opportunities are right now is that their facility in, um, in Peru is operating at capacity. They have 12 years of consistent profitability. They pay a dividend, um, that's just under 4% yield. They grow their, they've been growing their dividend every year. They traded at a, at a good valuation about 10 times earnings right now. But if you look forward, they're planning on expanding. They're in the process of expanding their facilities from one facility in Peru the four facilities through South America and then also West Africa. So they think they can more than double their revenues over the next four years. And again, this is a company that's producing a ton of free cash flow um, and it has 30 million in cash on its balance sheet. So it's not like they have to go to the market to raise yeah. equity or or take on a bunch of debt in order to to move forward with this expansion plan. So this is going to be a higher risk on the higher risk end of the spectrum than the other two that I talked about. Um, but again, it's it's about you know this is where you're you're layering you're adding layers of risk to augment return to your portfolio. But,
0: but it's also what you guys are going to be dealing with in the seminars is how do you build a portfolio? You know how do you integrate? You know these sort of solid growth positions or even conservative growth with something that is more aggressive, more speculative. So that's exactly what the seminars are. And as, as I said, I should have said, by the way, the seminar November 2nd at 7 o'clock Pacific, then you're doing another November 9th at 7 o'clock Eastern. But it's 2995 is the early bird special. Um, and that includes, and this is something I talked to Ryan Irvine, your partner with, about the whole sis, uh, situation with having to change the electrical grid. And you've got a report called electrification uh, that you've just put out. That's a 5 dollars value, but that comes with it. So, uh, But I want you to tell me about the other one, because you are also doing a VIP event on November 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, which is, of course, more pricey. Its original value is about Really, about thirty-seven hundred dollars, but uh, you can get the early bird ticket price at just under two thousand. So, tell me about that. What are you getting if I'm going to put out that money, kind of money?
1: Right. So, so the the VIP event is really for people that are re- ready to move forward. With a full VIP service package mm-hmm. from, from Keystone Financial. So right away, is you get our, our our VIP research package. So this is all of our research, all of our small cap recommendations, dividend growth, U.S. recommendations, all of that. There's our VIP portfolio, which are all of our, our top picks. We have a portfolio builder app. Um, we do about a 100 uh, Q&A sessions with the analysts throughout the course of the year on a weekly basis. Um, there's a couple of special VIP webinars throughout the course of the year. And then on top of that, we also have what, what is, is a a DIY seminar specifically designed for our VIP clients. So it includes all of the educational content that we would have in our typical DIY, DIY webinar. Um, but then we go, we, we expand beyond that. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to set our clients up for success. So it's, it's research plus education. Um, as well as um, opportunities to do calls um, with with our analyst team, just essentially set people up for success, get them started with our recommendations and building that portfolio and then helping them along the way as well. So it's a very, very comprehensive, uh, very comprehensive service.
0: You know, it's, as I say, I think we're in a a period of time where I think it's as difficult. We had Jamie Dimon, I think, this week said it's the most precarious time, you know, he can remember in generations now. And I would agree uh, with that. And people ask me all the time, well, how do I defend for myself? How do I protect myself? This is how. Education is how. Um, but I'll tell people that you didn't have to memorize all that. You can go to keystocks.com, keystocks.com, or go to talks.ca and get all the details of that. In the meantime, Aaron, I think those sound, sound terrific, but I want to thank you for taking time with us today.
1: Oh, it's always always a great time. Thanks a lot, Michael. Appreciate it.
0: Time now for the quote of the week. You know, I think the hallmark of the climate debate surrounding the energy transition to renewables has been the failure to address the myriad of practical challenges from where like where the minerals and materials going to come from to the lack of realistic analysis of the cost. And the shortcomings are exacerbated by the one sided media coverage and this sort of no questions allowed attitude by climate change advocates. And that brings me to the quote of the week. Michael Kelly is Emeritus Professor of Engineering at the University of Cambridge. He is a fellow of the Royal Society, of the Royal Academy of Engineering, of the Royal Society of New Zealand, of the Institute of Physics and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. That's quite a list, as well as a senior member of the Institute of Electronic and Electrical Engineering in the U.S. He states the idea that net zero can be achieved on the current timeline by any means short of a command economy combined with a drastic decline in our standard of living and several unlikely technological miracles is a blatant falsehood. The silence of the national academies and the professional science and engineering bodies about these big picture engineering realities is despicable. People need to know the realities of net zero, end of quote. It's noteworthy that the global consultant firm McKinsey, the favorite used by governments, including by the federal liberals, put the annual cost of achieving net zero at $9.2 trillion. I said that, annual cost, $9.2 trillion. Now, critics say the report doesn't take into account the increased cost of extreme weather events on the other side if we don't get to net zero emissions. And... And it's a big but, by the way, as Judith Curry made clear in last week's money talks in quotes, even the intergovernmental panel on climate change acknowledges that there is very little relationship between a warming temperature and worsening extreme weather events apart from heat waves. On the benefit side, we'd get fewer extreme cold events, and that's nine times greater mortality from cold than from heat events. But back to the number. Net zero. This is just one estimate, but everyone is way up there with numbers we can't even comprehend. Net zero, 9.2 trillion U.S. per year. As regular listeners know, I think one of the big questions, how are you going to protect the purchasing power of your currency? And, of course, we jumped on the – well, we didn't jump on the bandwagon. I think we started it, and that's in February 2020 when we started saying, hey, my big worry is about – and as I said this right at the top of the show, by the way, the purchasing power – of paper currencies. I, I don't have a short-term view on that. I have a long-term challenge with that. But one of the areas, of course, is so interesting, and many absolutely love it, is silver. So Jason Weber is, is with me. Jason's got a long-time experience in this mining sector, but he's also the president of Silver North Resources. Uh, Jason, let me just start with this. The debate seems to be, should I be looking at silver as a industrial metal? And then you'd look at things like renewable energy and all of those, you know, electrification, those kind of uh, uses, or should I just be, or should it more dominate my worry about, as I say, the devaluation of the paper currency? You know, as I say, a junior partner to gold.
2: Well, Mike, I think that's a that's a tough question. In that, I I look at it both ways, really. I think you can't ignore uh, the financial side of silver, but as somebody who comes from a, a mining exploration background, I just look at supply and demand, and I I, I look at the demand profiles for silver in, in, in this green transition that we're, that we're going through. And I can't help but think there is a, a, a big market there for silver, a, a high demand that's going to keep increasing over the foreseeable future. And uh, you know, I, I, I come back to just the uh, a statement I read once, silver is the metal of 10,000 uses. And I think we're, we're seeing that borne out in this green transition.
0: Well, especially when we talk about electrification generally, you know, I mean, there's so many uses. And I, I'm sort of with you. I see both. There's going to be people who jump in who say, you know, as I say, it's, it's because of the excessive printing of money or creation of money that's devaluing our overall purchasing power. But I, I think silver also has that unique area from the so-called precious metals That has just such an aggressive use profile, and uh, and at some point it gets rewarded. I'm a I'm a longer term guy, and obviously when you run a company like uh, you know uh, Silver North Resources, I mean your time frame isn't next Tuesday. I mean you know when you're doing projects and meeting with partners and all that, you have to have a longer term, uh, realistic longer term profile.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know. Um, some of your your listeners might know us by by another name, which was Alianza Minerals, and it was mm-hmm. just over this last summer that we took kind of your long term idea that silver is is some place we we wanted to be. We wanted to be involved, um, really in a, a more in depth way in the exploration of silver, being at that front end of the the supply chain for for that metal. I think that was that was really important for us. And uh, with Alianza, our focus was on our our main project, Haldane, in in the famous Keno Hill Silver District in the Yukon. But it was a bit, maybe a harsh way to say it, cluttered by some of the other projects that we had in the portfolio. And we really wanted to take the focus and and really put it on silver. And because that's, you know, as as our management group, we really thought that silver was the place we wanted to be, uh, not just for the next six months, or a year, but the next two, five, ten years, this is, well, I mean, this is the place we want to be.
0: That makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, uh, a smaller company, junior, uh, junior mining. I mean, you've got a you have to focus. It's not like you can have a four billion dollar portfolio and develop it all. So, I mean, it makes sense to me that you chose to narrow down your focus and put both financial and uh, physical resources, uh, you know, management managerial resources, expertise, et cetera, uh, and and drill down uh, to one area.
2: Yeah, and it also helps that we have two really great silver projects in the Yukon that we focused <laughs> on. So we, we had that leg up already.
0: But, but it is a, it's a process you'd go through, like someone in their portfolio, which where do I have the potential to get the best bang for the buck is really what, you know, that's the investment game where we can get the best return for our shareholders yeah, you're within that. Uh, but I've also read about Hecla being involved up in that area. So, I mean, I've, I've known Hecla since Jim Dines used to send it to me for Christmas, you know, <laughs> but, you know, very well-known company. So tell me a little bit uh, just quickly about how that sort of factors in to your your company.
2: Well, you, you talk about Mr. Dines. Uh, um, Hecla is a 125-year-old silver producer, the biggest uh, silver producer in North America. So um, they do kind of fly under the radar a little bit, but they got involved in the Kino district oh, just about a year ago exactly. I think the deal was, was finalized when they purchased Alexco Resources, which was the miner, the, the producer of, of silver in the district with sort of the core uh, holdings in the district and and the operating mines, uh, they were struggling. It was a, a real grind for them in that they were undercapitalized and they had a an overhanging streaming agreement on their silver production that really hamstrung them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hecklow had been watching this project for a while, uh, knew it very very well. And when when uh, Alexco ran into problems and had to to shut down to stockpile ore to get Throughput at their mill up to 100%. That gave Hecla the window to to come in and and work out a deal where they could extinguish the stream on the silver production, uh, recapitalize the the operation, and they've um, they've gone about that over the last year. And this quarter will be telling for them. This is where the sort of rubber hits the road for them. They they will uh, be ramped up to a, a full production at the mill, 100% capacity, 440 tons per day and, uh, and, and full on silver production. And they look at the Keno Hill Mines as being a, a big part of their production profile uh, going forward as they now become North America's largest silver producer.
0: Well, as I say, you just mentioned one thing and I wanna finish with this, um, that obviously uh, you gotta have the project, you gotta have the approach, you gotta have the expertise and you've gotta have the money. So I, I just read that, uh, that you guys have looking at, uh, you know, private placement for Silver North resources. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, we we've, we really want to get um, our Haldane project uh, up and running. We made a discovery uh, a couple of years ago, a brand new silver vein, uh, dead ringer for the, the silver veins that they're mining uh, at uh, at Hecla's Keno deposit. So, and, and we've had the stamp of approval. Those Hecla geologists have seen our, our drill core and giving mm-hmm. us a thumbs up. Yeah, this is exactly what our stuff looks like. So, so we're really confident in, in what we've got. We just have to start building out that discovery to see how big it can be. And so we have to raise a little bit of money here with our, our first uh, financing as Silver North, looking to raise a million and a half dollars. It's in, in two different forms. We have a just a regular uh, a share uh, at uh, at 20 cents. It comes with a half warrant at 30 cents. Uh, good for three years. And then we have what's called flow through, uh, where we can actually pass through, uh, tax advantages on to shareholders who buy those flow through shares. And, and those are also, uh, at, uh, 20 cents a share, uh, with the, with no, no warrant or anything with it, just because the, the tax advantages you get there, that's kind of the, the, uh, the icing on, on that mm-hmm. one. So that financing is open, uh, for accredited investors and, and, um, uh, we look you know for anybody who's interested in investing in the, the front end of the supply chain for silver, uh, we think we're we're a good place to to do that
0: well, it's interesting stuff. I mean I mean obviously, I think silver uh, you know we've been talking about it because of that dual use you know, that we alluded to earlier and, you know, for people who are looking to uh, to get involved at sort of, as you say, the front end, you know, it's an aggressive side of the business there, but uh, you know, you sort of want to be in that side if you're going to get, if you believe in the bull market, you know, theory uh, of that. So uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, we'll put, I'm going to put up the, the information about where to get more information. We'll put that up on our website and we'll send it out in our email, but give it to me verbally just quickly.
2: Yeah, obviously our website is is the best place to start at uh, www.silvernorthres.com. Uh, that's uh, and you can get uh, my contact information. Certainly, anybody can can get yeah. a hold of me uh, if they're interested in participating in in the financing or just want more information on the company and, and what we're doing. Uh, certainly, that's uh, that's what I'm here for to talk to our, our investors and shareholders and and uh, and keep them up to date on, on what we're active on.
0: Well, thanks for talking with us, Jason. Thanks for taking the time. We'll talk soon. My pleasure.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it's taken from a recent Angus Reid poll in their ongoing series on Canada and the culture wars. In looking at the responses, it's tempting to say that people don't really have a grasp of, history or maybe they don't understand economics. But how do I know that? I mean, that's arrogant of me to say it. So instead, I'm going to take people at their word. For example, 74% of respondents say they either support or strongly support a wealth tax, which basically says that after a person has paid, well, a myriad of other taxes from income tax, to sales tax, to gas tax, liquor taxes, and on and on, 74% of Canadians say, that's not enough. We want to tax what's left over. No, maybe that's money is placed in something like their own business, like they've invested to start one, or they've invested in other people's businesses through the stock market or private equity or deposited in the bank or lent it to government by buying bonds. So I'll take the 74% at their word and assume that they appreciate the unmitigated failure of wealth taxes to increase government revenues in so many jurisdictions. I mean, they've been tried. In fact, They've resulted in lower government revenues at times because there's less money left over to be invested and help grow the economy. And in Canada, we have a problem with the lack of capital investment. I assume that they know that when Norway instituted a new tax on the wealthy, and they did that, I guess, over a year ago, they projected government revenues would increase by about $150 million annually, US dollars. But instead, it looks like the government will receive about 40% less than it generated before the new tax was introduced. I hope that the respondents to the survey are familiar with the work of Nobel Prize winner, the late Robert Lucas, whose work would have helped them predict that individuals would react in a rational way to an increase in taxes and look to avoid them. And they did. I think the estimate in Norway is 30 billionaires and multimillionaires have left the country. I have to assume that they know that of the 12 countries that had a general net wealth tax in 1990, there's only four left, Colombia, Norway, Spain, Switzerland, and they collect only a small amount of revenue. But it's not a surprise. Come on, I don't care who you, who you would have said uh, on that survey, but I bet the 74% of Canadians who support a wealth tax probably wait till things go on sale in their personal lives. Maybe some even cross the border to buy cheaper gas and dairy. Maybe they wait for seats, uh, seat sales on WestJet, Air Canada before booking. In short, they look for deals. But somehow they think that people with money who've worked, saved, invested, maybe started their own business, won't react to the government taking even more of their income by taking moves, moves like leaving that jurisdiction or doing other things to avoid the extra taxes. Although maybe, not so surprisingly, this is kind of interesting, when they were asked, the same people were asked about uh, a tax on their homes, on their own personal wealth. Did they support an extra tax of 25% on homes sold for over $1.5 million? Guess what? That 74% who supported wealth tax dropped in half to 36%. But it's also interesting within that same survey. 58% of respondents have a negative view of capitalism. So maybe I'm not surprised by the results. But in the meantime, yeah, it's fascinating to see what Canadian attitudes are. And at times, as is in the case of this, a failed policy like wealth taxes, to, a failed to increase government revenues and has a whole bunch of negative spin-offs. Well, I'm shocked that nearly three quarters of Canadians think that's a good idea. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek joins me now. I got to bring him in here because there's something called, and I want you to prepare for this because it's a word that I think maybe we should have heard more about, but it's called the underused housing tax. Underline the word tax on that one. Ozzy, let's start with telling people what it is and how, not how it affects them, but I guess the bottom line is everybody's got to file something here.
3: Well, you know, it's got to be the craziest name for real estate tax, the underused housing tax, or in abbreviation the UHT. Well, actually, what it is, it's a 1% tax on the ownership of vacant or underused housing in Canada that actually took effect in January of 2022. Now, the government, you and I talked about it last March, the government had put out such a confusing instruction of what mm-hmm. people had to do, and we were supposed to do it by March 31st, 2023, for 2022 that the outcry was so big, they said, no, we're going to extend it to October 31st this year. Now, the, the importance of that is that you have to file it, Mike, because they already extended it till now. They won't charge you a penalty, but if you don't file by October 31st, uh, you might have a penalty, 5000 at a minimum for individuals and 10000 for corporations. So what well, you say? Well, what the heck is it? You know, what, what's it for?
0: Yeah, well, what's it for is the big question.
3: What is yeah. it for? Well, most people think it's for foreigners, right? Because that's what the government had originally announced. It's non-resident, non-Canadian owners, and probably the most most people are exactly that. That uh, they're going to be the most effective. However, they have a whole bunch of information on their website, which will get your eyes uh, glazed over. Um, <laughs> You have to have, first of all, it's residential property, so a detached house, a duplex, a laneway house, a coach house, a cottage, a cabin, a challenge, a semi-detached, it's a condo, it's a row house, everything that's a residential property, number one. Number two, you have to be the owner. And then, and here's the biggie, you're determined to be an affected owner. So in other words, if you're an affected owner, you have to pay the tax or you at least have to declare it. Now, what is that? What's an affected owner? Well, if you're the... The person on the title, you and your wife, you're fine. And it's your principal residence. Don't worry about it. If your house is, if you're on the title and you have it rented out for six months at least, you're okay too. You don't have to pay. Uh, But if you don't, you have to pay a 1% tax So the $2 million house in, say, in Vancouver. That's $20,000 you have to pay. So it behooves you to really make sure. The kicker is what... What if you're affected? What does that mean? Well, if the house is held in a corporate name or a trust or any one of the various vehicles in which Canadians own property, then you must file. Now, if you own the title and I'm on the title and our wives on the title and we don't <clears throat> actually live there, it's not our residence, we got to each of us have to file that statement. Oh, wow. So So it's When you look at it, say, well, how how hard can it be? I mean, uh, who's infected? But let's say there's a silly example you have. If the parent added an adult child on the title as a joint tenant and the child is supposed to hold the property in trust for the favor of the parent, then you are an excluded owner. If, on the other hand, the adult child is generally an owner in the capacity of the trustee of a trust for the affected owner, then they have to report. You know, can you imagine? Who, as a normal person, knows the difference of what I just said? Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, the, the key is the penalty is big. The extension has already been made. There won't be any further extension. Go see your lawyer. I'm not a lawyer and I'm just giving you an opinion. It's not advice. So, dear listener, uh, if you have the slightest kind of doubt, for instance, in B.C., we, we are, we always have this bare trusts because we have high property transfer taxes. So properties are carried in different kind of vehicles. So if your name is on the property, even if the beneficial user may be somebody else, like a corporation, you have to make a declaration. And everybody that's part of the corporation has to make a declaration.
0: And, and that's the confusing part in terms. that That's clear what you've just said. But okay, so let's backtrack right to the beginning and say who has to file. So uh, you know, you, your spouse living in a principal residence, do you still have to file even though it's not going to no. apply to you, but you have to file?
3: No. no, no. For principal residence, you're exempt and for you don't have to file.
0: Okay. So uh, now you're an investor, so you own another property. And you said it's a long list, condo, a tent, you know, <laughs> a house, you know, whatever it is, you have to file. Like, the, you, you're renting it out, let's say sorry'
3: you're, rent, you're renting it out. If it's at least rented six months, you don't have to pay anything. and there's the difference. You may have to file, but you don't necessarily have to pay yeah. but if you don't file, you will get minimum penalty is five thousand dollars per person yeah. and ten thousand for a corporation. The thing is when you when I look at the list and they include a lane warehouse, so does that mean that if I own a house in a in a private company, you have your, you hold your real estate in a company. Yeah. Now I got to declare the company. Let's say like my own company has me, my wife, my children are all owners of that company. Each of us have to file. Then I also got to file one for my lane house, right on the same, you know, it could be very complicated and it's too complicated for a radio show. Because, because I'm the I'm the I'm the advisor or the, the talker. Yeah, no, no, but Go that, see your lawyer. You yeah,
0: <laughs> our our my point and our point here in putting this on is because in bumping into people over the last couple of weeks I said, have you even looked at this? You know, we got a deadline of October thirty first and they hadn't even heard of it. You know, that's what kills me. And I appreciate right. what you said. They introduced it over a year ago. They've extended it. But come on, unless you're dealing with this stuff on a regular basis. I mean, I found like nobody, Aussie had heard about this, like zero. Yeah. And it's called the underused housing tax. So that's what we're telling you to do. Check out whether you have to file, if you have to file what it is. Aussie's given us a, a good outline of that. But, yeah, you've got to check it out for yourself, you know, whether you have uh, somebody who... Yeah does this with you in the legal profession whatever we just want to make sure you don't ignore it because of these penalties if you didn't file you know and well that's
3: that's that's the thing and you can go to the website you know just go to www.canada.ca and then type in underused housing tax in the search field because their their website is so long that nobody will remember it but just go to canada.ca and they have a I don't think it would be any clearer after you read it, but at least you have uh, an idea about the immensity of the problem. If you're not just a regular homeowner and uh, if you just have the slightest uh, different way that you hold your property, it is not just a foreigner's tax. That's the big point. I don't know how many foreigners will actually like this uh, and the complaints will mount, but right now, October 31st is it. Well, I was, looking at, uh, I
0: was looking for this under www.anotherwaythegovernment'smakingmylifemiserable.ca. <laughs> and it came up. No, it didn't. <laughs> but yeah, so no, I appreciate how difficult this is, but I also appreciate you taking the time to do that with us. And again, uh, all we can say is you've been warned, you've got to go further. And uh, unless there's something, we don't want a nasty surprise. And this goes to myself. That's where this all started, Ozzy. I certainly hadn't filed and I said, what the heck, I got to learn more about this. But it's the underused housing tax or U-H-T. Ozzy, thanks. You've done yeoman's work here. Congratulations.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, Very, very quickly, I want to mention that I put out my OzBuzz newsletter, but I had so many questions to answer that I've decided to answer those questions on YouTube. So anybody that's interested in listening, to Me talk about the questions that are normally in Ozbas. Go to youtube.com, Jurok video, uh, and, uh, and get the pearls of wisdom from questions answered. And finally, I love this Zajak Gabor. You know, she said, A man in love is incomplete until he has married and then is finished. <laughs> Ozzy's
0: filing <laughs> uh, under. Can you say something to make Mike's, li- m- life, Mike's life miserable? Hey, too late. The underused housing tax already accomplished that for the week. Ozzy, have a great week. Thanks. You too. You know, it's fascinating. uh, Fascinating is a word I'm uncomfortable with. I should have said, I mean, the world is so compelling right now. So many things that have kept me on edge have depressed me also. But it comes down to your trading or your investing. And I think it's always important to take a step back and say, well, how do professionals deal with this? Because I still think, you know, the markets are not a place where you can say, I can predict everything. It's all about managing risk, et cetera. So I gave v- Victor a call and said, look, I want to talk about this. You've been in this business over 40 years. I want to talk about stuff you've learned, stuff that you'd advise uh, my children and your children to do, et cetera. So Vic, appreciate, first of all, you taking the time. And I want to start with what, what's your, if you had a golden rule that you'd sort of post above your uh, your computer, what would it be?
4: Well, actually, Mike, I, for years, I did have a little yellow sticky on one of my screens that said anything can happen.
0: Every, everybody's getting a shot of this right now, exactly what you have said. And I'll tell you what it is. And we used to talk about it on Money Talks. I mean, my theme on Money Talks was lock in your mortgage because rates could go up a lot higher and faster than we can imagine. Well, clearly, it was more than most people could imagine. And the reason I'm saying that is because now they're caught. They didn't imagine the risk. They could say, oh, yeah, rates are going up. They imagined maybe, you know, just a little bit. Now we've had this huge increase in rates. And this is what keeps me up at night. I worry about people and I get calls from them. I get emails from them. They're going to lose their homes. They're going to have to make that choice or other really severe choices. So it's not just so casual because, in other words, people didn't imagine that risk.
4: Well, you know, I, I used to say when I spoke at conferences that I had watched. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people lose millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I thought, you know, what was the one thing these folks had in common? And I will tell you, it's really simple. They just hated to take a loss. You know Whether that was psychology, like, gee, if I take a loss, I'm admitting I was wrong, I was an idiot or whatever. I take losses every day. It's not a big deal. I love taking smaller losses, and I hate taking big losses.
0: Well, you know, we've talked also about me not being a trader. That's the number one reason I recognize that I was not a trader. I found taking those losses – this is really interesting. I could take the loss if I was trading for you. I could show phenomenal – when it was my own money. I found I was reluctant, and I just said, you're not allowed to play in this game then. You're not allowed to. You're much more comfortable with a long-term view, lining up to what you think is the trend. All the other things we said, what happens if I'm wrong? How much am I willing to risk? But to have to do that daily like a trader does, I just recognized in myself that was too much. And It's the old Bernard Baruch line when he says, if you don't know yourself,
4: the markets are a very expensive place to find out. (laughs) Well, Yeah. I'll tell you this: If my analysis and trading are out of sync, it's prop. It's almost always because I'm trading a shorter time frame than my analysis. You know, for instance, over the last few weeks here, I thought the the sell off in bonds was just getting way overdone. You know, people positioning uh, the the bearish attitude out there was just almost an extreme, and I thought this market is due to turn. You know, uh, like you know, it was ripe for a reversal. And I kept making these little trades in there, trying to pick a bottom to the market rather than wait patiently for the bottom to get made and the market to start to rally and then buy it. That, that's what I mean by just getting out of sync. I liked my idea that the bond market was going to bounce so much that I threw discipline out the window and started trading short term and taking lots of little losses.
0: Uh, Again, because I've also, as you know, been involved, I don't don't even want to, I don't like to count how many years, (laughs) but uh, the one that it's very similar, but the one for me that kills me, that I hit myself over the head with, I have a long-term time frame, and let's say I was very bullish on something or very bearish, doesn't matter, but let's say very bullish and, uh, you know, pick something. And I thought gold was going to go to $5,000 or something and it's trading at 800. And what's your time frame, Mike? Oh, five years or seven years. I enter the trade like i 'm trading it the next week, because let 's face it, if you have a view that says that something's going to go up five hundred percent on your time frame,
3: mm.
0: why are you dicking around for to, to haircut that la, that first five percent or three percent? yeah I, I could get it at ten, but I, I, if it goes to nine twenty five i 'm in i can 't tell you how many how many opportunities i've missed where the actual analysis was good, but the person who was enacting it was immature.
4: Yeah, and when you have an idea, it's how you implement the trade. You could have a good idea and just implement it the wrong way. And a classic way to implement a trade the wrong way, let's, let's say you want to buy something because you know you got an idea it's gonna go up. Well, you step in and you buy too much. Okay. Then if it does start to go down, now you're you're gonna be responding out of fear instead of going, yeah, know, this trade isn't working, just kick it out. If it's if you got too much on and you're fearful if they can I can't take a loss here. This is and so that's what I mean by implementing the trade. You had a good idea, but you just went about it the wrong way. Let's talk about something a little more
0: detailed for everyone here. Okay, And that is it's something that I know, uh, you know, with uh, Kevin Muir, who's a good friend of yours, good friend of our show. Mm-hmm. He said this a while ago to me, and that is, um, you know, he's basically sitting there and he's saying, I think the market should do this. And this is something I recognize in a ton of people. Uh, they're doing it in gold a lot over the last few years. And I, ha- I don't think gold's been that terrible a performer, but they sit there and they go, look at how much money's getting created. Gold has to move. Mm-hmm. And so, no, the market didn't give them that signal though. It's
4: just, that's what they think the market should do. Yeah, well, and Kevin has said that, and, and Kevin and I go back and forth on this. Oh yes, I was trading what I thought the market should do. Not what it actually is doing. I I think the copper is another similar example. There was an extremely bullish case for copper put out. You know, copper is going to go to the moon because the world is going electric. Well, it certainly hasn't. You know, it was a story, and if you had bought copper at five dollars a pound, which was its all-time high, you know, you're you've been underwater for two years and and probably wondering why the other idiots around you, you know, don't believe what you believe. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the professional traders that I know just understand you're going to take losses. You have got to ask yourself when you go to put a trade on, what am I going to do if I'm wrong? And if you don't have an answer for that, you shouldn't put on the trade.
0: Well, I'll leave you with this. I know that there's not a single politician who trades actively because they'd all
4: be bankrupt with the way they make decisions. And I
0: know that's glib, but I sincerely believe it. They couldn't answer any of the questions. When are you wrong? What are you looking for? What's the indicator? All of that kind of stuff. But I'll leave that for now, Vic, and say instead thanks very much and invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca, and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Maybe you missed it, but this past week, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and now that's led by Minister Pablo Rodriguez. By the way, he was the author of Bill C-18. That's the uh, legislation that has resulted in Facebook no longer carrying Canadian news links. But that department has requested millions more in additional dollars, hear this, to keep up surveillance on Internet users who in the government's views promote, in quotes, incorrect political beliefs. Boy, I hope you think about that. They go on to say that, in quotes, disinformation impacts Canadian health and safety, civic discourse and engagement, impacts political belief, perceptions of democratic institutions, confidence in political systems, and trust in the media. End of quote. Man, that is just pushing a button for me. By the way, it reminds me, when you remember when Prime Minister... Trudeau commented on the truckers' convoy, but this is well before they entered Ottawa and any disruption that they made there. He said the supporters held unacceptable views. And by the way, I think he's sincere. I think he believes that many people who disagree with the government are spreading misinformation. But I also got to be honest with you, this really presses my buttons. Because I believe free speech is a foundational right in a democracy. Well, questioning authority, by the way, and generally accepted views, is the basis of all progress. So, yeah, I have a problem with people who want to censor me. But secondly, because a strong argument can be made that government and its institutions are the biggest purveyors of misinformation. I have yet to hear, now there is one exception, Anthony Fauci, I have yet to hear anyone in government admit that the government itself has a long record of peddling misinformation. Now, it used to be called propaganda and spin. But as COVID illustrated, the political agenda has morphed into not just trying to influence public opinion, but control our behavior. And by the way, I mentioned Fauci. Why? Because he's the lone exception I can think of that admitted to peddling misinformation during COVID, which he called noble lies. That's right. He admitted to lying to the public because in his opinion, it was for their own good. I mean, there's so many examples, though, of government misinformation during COVID. For example, I'm fully vaccinated by the way, but contrary to what the government said, it didn't mean I couldn't catch COVID. And more importantly, it didn't mean I couldn't spread it. But that was the rationale for vaccine mandates and people losing their jobs or refusing to be vaccinated. But it was misinformation. Many apologists for government ignore that Pfizer itself said in front of the European parliament on October 10th, 2022, it never tested for preventing transmission. Government still made the claim gosh, it was as early as December 2020, before receiving the original emergency use authorization, both Moderna and Pfizer acknowledged they had not tested to see if the vaccine prevented transmission. It's going to be news to some people because they never heard it in the media. In December 2020, the FDA emergency use authorization press release, my goodness, it was the press release that confirmed there was in quotes, no evidence that the vaccine prevented transmission of SARS-CoV-2 from person to person, end of quote. Yet both politicians, majority of the media, continued to promote the misconception. How about Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, in coordination with the Biden administration? Well, they worked to censor information. The government also ignored the immunity provided by COVID itself, despite 140 studies concluding that it offers equal or better protection than vaccination, but leave COVID because we got so many other examples. How about Russiagate perpetrated by specific sections of government and media? It's proven to be completely false. How about the Hunter Biden laptop told it was a Russian plant. They had 50 CIA agents sign a letter pointing to Russian interference which was widely circulated on social media, despite the fact that it was totally bogus. There's lots of other examples of government misinformation. Gosh, I think about the truckers' convoy cabinet, led by Public Safety Minister Marco Mandacino, repeatedly, and echoed, by the way, by the Attorney General David Lametti, claimed without evidence that large amounts of foreign cash financed the convoy. That was not true. The list just keeps going on. They said out a cabinet, that both the RCMP and the Ottawa police have requested the Emergency Act. But you know what? You know who refuted that? Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blaird, June 15th, last year, along with the RCMP and Ottawa police stated that wasn't true. I mean, the list goes on and on, but my point is that these are the people who are pushing to be in charge of deciding what constitutes misinformation with the government being able to label and flag anything that doesn't fit their agenda as misinformation. In short, it is whatever the government says it is, and nothing they say themselves qualifies. It's not overstating to say, man, that is a chief characteristic of totalitarian regimes. Misinformation has been with us forever. Now, some of it's out of ignorance and intellectual laziness, and I agree that can be dangerous. But now there's also misinformation with the aim to not only influence, but control us. Now, here's the important question, though. You can decide whether the cure, i.e. more government oversight, and being the ultimate judge of what can and can't be said, is worse than the disease. And on that question, some of the most celebrated thinkers in Western culture, from Einstein to Martin Luther King, from Ayn Rand to Noam Chomsky, from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Thomas Jefferson, Come down firmly on the side against government censorship and in favor of free speech. Hey, that's all the time we have this week, and I want to remind you why don't you sign up for five minutes with Mike? All you have to do is go to Mike'sMoneytalks.ca, Mike'sMoneytalks.ca. Uh, join us on Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And remember, remember the the seminars being offered by Keystone. Again, we can get information with us or keystocks.com. They're coming up. Take advantage of them. The more we know, the better it is. And in the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.